It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Wednesday, September 20th. I'm Desiree Frazier, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, legal experts say getting left behind in Mississippi's criminal justice system is all too common for poor defendants. The state's public defender office has solutions. Then a deep dive into the surge in EMS calls for unhoused people in New Orleans due to the heat. Plus, part two of our reflection on the life of civil rights activist Anne Moody. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Poor defendants in Mississippi's criminal justice system can face a long and murky road before their cases reach conclusion. The challenges within the state's court system are well documented. There are few available public defenders. Defendants awaiting trial could spend months to years in jail before appearing in court. A recent report by ProPublica reveals 22 of the state's 23 circuit courts have not delivered plans for how the courts will provide legal defense for indigent defendants. Six years ago, Mississippi Supreme Court issued an order to help move toward a statewide system. Obviously, it was an important step in the Mississippi criminal legal system when the Mississippi Supreme Court adopted for the first time Mississippi rules of criminal procedure back in 2017. Cliff Johnson is the director of the MacArthur Justice Center at the University of Mississippi. Those rules clarified when counsel must be appointed, made clear that initial appearances had to happen within 48 hours of arrest, and that public defenders had to be appointed at those initial appearances. So with that clarification through these new rules came a requirement, loud and clear, from the Mississippi Supreme Court that all of our circuit court districts would adopt indigent defense plans, formal plans, that had to be approved by the Mississippi Supreme Court through the local rulemaking process. And as ProPublica Um, discussed in an article just this week, until just a few weeks back, none of our courts had gone through that process of adopting local rules that set forth their plans for indigent defense. So, So we had, on the one hand, this good news of the rules, and on the other hand, we had this frustrating reality that our circuit courts weren't following those rules when it came to 
adopting formal indigent defense plans. In the six years since that rule went into effect, only the 22nd Circuit Court, which covers Claiborne, Capaya, and Jefferson counties, has done so. Judge Tamika Irving presides over that court. Andre Degree runs Mississippi's Office of State Public Defender. He says while there are disagreements, her plan offers some promising ideas moving forward. The 22nd District is a really small, three-county, very rural district. Um, She's the only judge in that district. And we sort of worked through what, what a plan might look like. You know, we had a, we have a couple of disagreements with it. So it's very, if you looked at the model plan that we have on our website, that's what I've shared with, with judges. Um, she follows that for the most part in her order. Uh, and, and I would say when she filed it, one, I was so happy that we finally got a judge to file a report file a a proposal. So uh, I did not comment on it, but um, I mean, she knows I have a a couple of disagreements with it um, because we, again, we sat down and talked through all of this. My my concern with it is where the handoff is. um, And it's more of a, I guess, a from a defense perspective, what's best for the client, and I think, you know, ultimately what's best for the lawyer. Degree wants the Mississippi legislature to give him the power to establish indigent defense standards with Supreme Court approval. Funding to implement a cost-sharing program with the courts that adheres to those standards as well. His ideal plan also moves the handoff that is currently all too common in rural jurisdictions. The best system would be what we call vertical representation. Once a lawyer gets uh, meets the client, that they stay with the client through the end of the case, and you know that would be if this client had money to hire a lawyer, that's what he would do. He would hire a lawyer, and that lawyer would represent him to the end. I understand that doesn't work, particularly in rural areas. Uh, They just don't have the lawyers that can cover every court and and dealing with conflicts and such. So we have – there's going to be a handoff. There's going to be a lawyer from initial appearance or immediately after initial appearance through the end of the case, it's going to be at least, it's probably going to be two lawyers. But when when the handoff happens under her plan is at indictment. And, and so my belief on what a better, more efficient system would be, that as soon as, at no later than the preliminary hearing, which should happen within two weeks, if the case is going to go forward, the district attorney is going to take it to the grand jury, that that's where the handoff should happen. The lawyer that's going to handle the case through the end should get the case at, at no later than the preliminary hearing. It's not a perfect system. I think it's an improvement over what was happening in a lot of places. 
according to ProPublica, Mississippi ranks last nationally in how much money it spends per capita on public defense. That's based on an analysis from the Sixth Amendment Center, a nonprofit that advocates for a robust defense of the indigent. Mississippi is one of only eight states that rely on local officials to fund and deliver almost all public defense for people facing trial, according to the center. Cliff Johnson of the MacArthur Justice Center says state officials and legislators can resolve some of these issues. The reality is we're one of only five states in the United States of America that doesn't have a statewide public defender system. So so I'll say that the thing that so many of us say who who take a close look at our criminal legal system is we need a statewide public defender system. We have an excellent state public defender and Andre degree who would be as good as anybody I know at administering such a system. He's been appointed by governor Reeves approved by the current administration. And he's a highly competent person. Um, We need independence where um, judges who oversee these criminal cases don't have such a significant role in deciding who gets to be the public defender and who doesn't. We need additional resources. So there's pay equity where assistant public defenders are making wages comparable to assistant district attorneys. There's a substantial wage difference. And so so there's there's a lot of work to be done if we're really committed to a fair fight in Mississippi. And I think that's all anybody's asking for is a, is a kind of system and a funding mechanism that gives defense lawyers for poor people who was, you know, which make up about 85 or 90 percent of criminal defendants in Mississippi, you know, that gives them the same types of resources that prosecutors have. And we're not there yet. Mississippi is also in the minority of states without a limit on how long someone can stay in jail before being indicted by a grand jury. Coming up, a deep dive into the surge in EMS calls for unhoused people in New Orleans. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Family owned. You know, I respect my dad a lot. I know it wasn't easy when he passed the baton to me, but in the end, he realized it was the best thing for the business to sometimes look at things from different color lenses. Family owned, a legacy leadership podcast exploring family businesses who make up the backbone of the American economy. Listen now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or go to mpbonline.org. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. July was the hottest New Orleans has ever measured. Public officials, including the mayor and the governor, issued heat emergencies, warning people to take shelter during the hardest parts of the day. But those who work and live outside may not have that option. A new report in the news outlet The Guardian by Delaney Nolan revealed a huge spike in EMS calls for unhoused people experiencing heat illness and increased deaths. On top of that, they deal with regular harassment by law enforcement. She sat down with Drew Hawkins of the Gulf States Newsroom to talk more about what she found out. Hi, Delaney. Thank you so much for sitting down and talking with me about this. Thanks for having me, Drew. There's really a lot to unpack from your report. So let's start with the basics here. How is the heat impacting people who live outside? 
Yeah, so people living outside have been facing really extreme heat this summer. July was the hottest ever in New Orleans. August was the hottest ever month at all in New Orleans. And this is the world's hottest summer ever. The state's also in extreme drought. So this constant record-breaking heat, it's especially dangerous for unhoused people because heat stress is cumulative. That means it just gets worse and worse the longer you're in it. And when you can't escape it, day after day, night after night, that's when you really get into trouble. Unhoused people also they tend to have more comorbidities like diabetes, cardiovascular issues, things that make them even more vulnerable. Uh, so there are some numbers that I think really drive that point home. I spoke with the New Orleans EMS, and they told me that last summer they had three heat-related calls for unhoused people. So far this year, they've had 67 Yeah, and I think it's really important to point out here, as you did in your reporting, that this heat isn't just uncomfortable. It can actually be really deadly for people who are living outside. Is that something that we're seeing? Yeah, I really think we should emphasize this is life-threatening heat. These just are not conditions that the human body can get used to. Extreme constant heat has what one expert I spoke with called sneaky effects on your major organs. So... To give kind of an overall picture, since June 1st, at least 31 unhoused people have died just in New Orleans. That's an average of every three days. So remember that heat deaths are really notoriously hard to diagnose. It might not kill you outright, but your heart is pounding harder all day and night. Your kidneys are dehydrated and struggling. You've got blood clots breaking free. It's sneaky and serious damage. So... Only about a third of those 31 unhoused deaths have a cause of death listed so far, and none of them say heat. But I shared one of those causes of deaths with the expert, and he said it absolutely sounded heat-related. So the point is this. It's safe to say that heat is causing deaths of unhoused people, even if heat is not listed as their official cause of death. I spoke with one unhoused gentleman named Mike Infinity, who stays in Jackson Square, and He's seen those dangers firsthand. A lady recently died out here, one of the homeless people. She used to always come to and get food on Wednesday. She stayed right here on the front, yeah. What was her name? Her name was um, Robin. So that was Robin Metcalf. Robin died on August 8th, the same day that the heat emergency was declared in New Orleans. She does not yet have a cause of death listed. You know, you've talked about that there were a few things that didn't quite make it into the report. And I'm thinking specifically about this idea that there were people living on the streets who died during the heat emergency, who had actually had housing vouchers but hadn't yet found a landlord who would accept them before their deaths. Do you mind going into that a little bit? Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. So that didn't make it into the story, but I think it really underscores how preventable some of these deaths are. Mike Infinity's friends, Robin Metcalf, the one who died the day the heat emergency was declared, she was actually one of those people. She'd finally gotten awarded a housing voucher but she hadn't yet been able to find a place to use it. And then, even though she was finally incredibly close to being housed, she died outside the same morning Mayor Cantrell signed the heat emergency declaration. You know, Delaney, one of the things that really stood out to me reading your report was just the number of people that you talked to for this story. I mean, it must have taken an immense amount of trust, especially, you know, you think about this community, they have plenty of good reason to be distrustful. So I'm wondering if maybe you can tell us What support could help people living on the street right now? So overwhelmingly, people are saying that housing is the most useful intervention they could receive. 
to get there. We need more caseworkers, more affordable housing, more housing services. I think what we're seeing is that the climate crisis is also a housing crisis, and we need to get everybody inside. That means wholesale dedication to universal housing, public housing, affordable housing with support services, tenant protections, and legislative moves like banning source of income discrimination, which could have helped somebody like Robin get inside faster and avoid her death. And in the immediate term, cold water is a big deal. So do you ever drive down Calliope or Claiborne? Consider keeping some frozen water bottles in the back, maybe some cold sports drinks or oranges. That can help people get some immediate relief. But there's no fix like housing with air conditioning. That's a great point, Delaney. I mean, a little bit of kindness goes a long way and is a great thing to do. But ultimately, the real fix here is addressing the underlying problem. Um, Really incredible reporting. And I really thank you so much for taking some time to break it all down for us. Thank you so much, Drew. The Gulf States Newsroom is a partnership between Mississippi Public Broadcasting and public radio stations in Alabama and Louisiana. Coming up, part two of our discussion about civil rights activist Ann Moody with her younger sister, Frances Jefferson. This is MPB Think Radio. You're listening to Mississippi Edition. Humor, stories, news, music. Our weekend lineup has it all. Tune in to enjoy the relaxed sound of the weekends on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Civil rights activist Ann Moody will soon be admitted into the Tougaloo College National Alumni Hall of Fame. While a student at Tougaloo, Moody participated in the 1963 sit-in at the Woolworths lunch counter in Jackson. The peaceful protesters were burned with cigarettes, covered in food, and beaten by segregationists who surrounded the counter. Moody also authored a book titled Coming of Age in Mississippi, which is now required reading in many high schools and colleges. Moody died in 2015. She was 74 years old. She would have turned 83 September 15th. We're speaking with her younger sister, Frances Jefferson. In part two of our conversation, she says her sister wanted to stay out of the spotlight, with much of her civil rights work being done behind the scenes. You know, I think that she was just low-key, but I think that she always had a hand out, that she always had a hand on the pulse of things. I think she just wanted to be low-key and try to do what she could to make things better. And she wanted to, and you know, I think when she was around me, I think it was kind of like a little daunting to her to see how things were not so much so great. You know, she walked around among people around here, and they know they didn't have a clue who she was. And I went to the, to the African American Museum over in Natchez, Mississippi, uh, about a year or so ago, and I donated. You know, they dedicated Highway 24 to her between Woodville and Centerville. So I had a replica of the sign, and I, I donated it to the museum over there. And there was a crew of, of uh, kids coming in from. I don't exactly remember the university, but there was one black girl in the group, and I was talking to her, and I told her who I was and told her who my sister was. She had no clue. And I think that's sad. You know, I do. I really think it's sad. You think this will help promote her 
get her out and there'll be more public awareness? Well, uh, Dr. Roscoe Barnes has done a lot as far as that concerned, and I give him great credit because he was the one who, when he was chaplain, the prison in Woodville, Mississippi, he he launched a study and had the inmates study her book, and it spawned like the most beautiful artwork you've ever seen. And he was always had his hand in everything to get her the street that she grew up on. He got the street named after her and got the highway named after her. And pretty much everything that has to do with her being brought back to light in the last five or six years was because of the work that he did. What did she share with you about any of her activist activities? Did she talk about that at all? She talked a little bit about the hard times. And I remember one day she touched a little bit on the day that Mega Edwards died. I think that he had just dropped her off someplace. And when he got back home, he was murdered that night. He was murdered that evening. And I think that the Emmett Till murders was the one that actually got her mind spinning as a, as a teenager because, you know, she worked right around here with a lot of the, in a lot of the white homes as a domestic and stuff, even when she was in high school. But I think that, that right there did something, uh, it sparked something in her. And when Mega Evers died, I think that was kind of like the turning point uh, for her. I think that affected her the most out of anything that happened. And she would talk to me, you know, I would sit there and I remember talking to her about the four little girls that died in that church. And this and week is the 60th anniversary. It was just sad. You know, she she would speak of it in some sadness. And then we'll go back to some happier times. She was, like I said, she would only touch on it only so much. She didn't uh, dwell on it too much. She was just, at the time in her life, just trying to live, like, as I say, trying to live in the moment and trying to encourage me and pretty much anybody else that was standing still. You know, education was the way to go. And she wanted us to be responsible, good people. And I think that was pretty much her goal after she uh, left the limelight and she came back here from Europe. So she was not too absent in anything. She just was pretty much low-key and focusing, and she made a few statements, and she did a couple interviews here and there. But she wanted everybody to just be successful and be happy. And I want to ask you this and, you know, answer it in the way that you feel there was uh, some information written that um, she was paranoid later on and suffered from some type of mental illness that she never received treatment for. That's true. All I want to say is that she did the best she could. You know, she was a little bit nomadic during that time in her life, but I think she was just trying to do the best that she could. She didn't have any real help. My mother died, like I said, in 1976. So, you know, she just didn't reach out to too many, to, to us too much. She dealt with her life the best way that she could. And now you are looking to raise $10,000 because that's what it's going to take in order for her to be inducted into the... N- Tougaloo's National Alumni Hall of Fame, right? Yes. And I'm working on that along with uh, uh, Dr. Wheeler to get it done. And then Dr. Roscoe Burns, he's put a lot of, did a press release and got a lot of stuff, got a lot of buzz going on. But 
it's it's kind of hard. And Dr. Wheeler has done amazing to get this to actually get it kicked off. Because for a minute there, I thought I'd say, "Oh Lord, I'm I'm, I'm gonna have to be a foot soldier on my own on this." But she has been so great helping me to pick myself up and actually get out there and get this done. Because I was gonna do it if I had to do it by myself. I was gonna do it, but I'm so grateful. It's kind of odd because I've sent the email that Dr. Wheeler has sent to some of the, the people who have been, who have found success in their lives, who actually grew up here with us and grew up in Centerville, Mississippi. And some of these are very successful business people, no response whatsoever. And I think it's sad. That's sad. But it won't stop me because I'm going to get it done. If there's someone listening who would like to be a supporter of this, what should they do? They can go to Tougaloo. I think it's TCNAA. They can go on the website and make a donation and, make, and you know, you have to click and make it in her name where it show up as a donation for her. It's TCNAA.org slash Hall of Fame slash 20. 23 and select Ann Moody's and you scroll down and you select her name. Frances Jefferson, the sister of Ann Moody, civil rights activist and author. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Thank you. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.